0: thanks so much for joining me for this episode of The Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. This episode feels a bit like a a leveling up, if you will, of the show. For the first time, I was not at all involved in our featured interview you're about to hear. This interview was conducted by my co-host on today's episode, Jeanette Barnard. Many of you know Jeanette's name because she writes probably the most well-known, and I would definitely say the best, email newsletter of the animal agriculture industry called Prime Future. You can sign up for that if you're not already signed up at primefuture.substack.com. But she's also an entrepreneur and a consultant with Rock Road Consulting. She was on the show way back in episode 16 of this show, had to dig that number out of the archives. Talking about her startup at the time, the Poultry Exchange, Jeanette. Thank you so very much for being on the episode here with me today.
1: Thanks, Tim. Happy to be here, and uh, especially since this is a topic that I'm, I'm really interested in. It was, it was just fun to dive into it with David.
0: Yeah, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart as well. Uh, many listeners already know. I grew up on a small farm in Northern California that sold direct to consumer meat. We sold uh, pigs and goats to Hispanic markets and ducks to. Asian markets. And so, for those of you listening, you probably saw the title. We're talking about the direct to consumer meat business. And this episode goes way past some of the cliches that you've heard about this model that have definitely come out, especially since COVID 19 started. Jeanette goes way deeper on some truly fascinating stuff. But before we introduce you to our guest, uh, Jeanette, let's hear from you. Why is this something that's so important in your mind to the future of animal agriculture?
1: Yeah. So, Two of my core hypotheses about innovation in animal ag is that we need innovation that number one drives producer profitability, and number two increases the value proposition for meat and poultry at the consumer level. And to me, this is this whole area of direct to consumer and really this just area of I'm gonna call it business model innovation. It achieves both of those things. It's a way to increase profitability for the producer while increasing the value proposition to the consumer. And so that's really what I'm interested in. And part of what's so fascinating about David's story that the listeners are going to hear is that he's doing this at scale. And there's a lot of direct-to-consumer. There's not a lot of direct-to-consumer at scale, which makes this so compelling.
0: Yeah, and I really am just blown away by how good this interview is. Often on the show, we get a chance to talk about innovations that help make agriculture more efficient uh, and help producers become more of the low-cost leader. It's rare that we get to talk about innovations that actually help with the top line and making farmers more money, and this is a great example of that today. So without further ado, could you maybe introduce us to our guest so we can dive into this very interesting interview?
1: You bet. So this conversation is with David Newman of Newman Farm out of Missouri. So they raise Heritage Berkshire Pork. And David also happens to have a PhD in meat science. So he comes at this conversation from both a science element as well as a business uh, mind. So I I think your listeners are going to enjoy that aspect. Uh, David comes from a deep family history of farming. And uh, actually, in the 90s, they they nearly went broke in your traditional fair-to-finish hog operation, just competing in commodity markets. And that's what drove them to go down the direct-to-consumer model and, and go down that path. And they have, over the last 20 years, just built an incredible business and you'll hear about some of the shifts they've made along the way, what sales channels worked, what didn't, and particularly, you know, some of those transitions that have happened rapidly in the last year, but they were able to be successful in the last year because of lessons they've learned in the last 20 years. So David has a lot of tremendous insights that he's going to share. Uh, and I think everybody's going to find something in this episode for them, whether they work for a processor, uh, and a, and a large scale company that's looking at this, the direct to consumer channel, or whether they're a producer uh, looking at this space as well.
0: Yeah. And I just find this to be great perspective for anyone interested in business in general. Uh, As a special bonus, at the end, we have a startup spotlight with the founder of Barn to Door, which is a direct-to-consumer software for producers that David actually uses in his business. But let's not delay this any further. Let's get into the interview. Here is Jeanette's conversation with David Newman. We'll dive right into where David takes us back to the time where they felt the commodity market was just no longer working for them.
2: I mean, back in 98, I mean, the reality was we watched numerous people, independents, exit the business. And many of those people were family friends, even in our family. I mean, essentially, we went completely broke in the commodity business in about an eight-month period. And it was brutal. I mean, selling loads of hogs for total checks on semi-loads were not even enough to cover transportation. And so, you know, at that time, even though the market recovered very quickly there, we were in a position here in the Ozarks where we farm, where we're away from some of that major grain business. We're going to pay a little bit more for feed here. Now, the good news is, fast forward that much time, we're extremely biosecure because we have no other hogs in our region. So Mm -hmm. turns out from a biosecurity standpoint, we're very advantageous on what we're doing. But the idea was there is is quite simply what we talked about in our family was we're going to have to go somewhere between five and 10,000 sows, or we're going to have to focus on quality. So we're going to go quality over quantity or quantity over quality, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So let's talk about the markets that don't work. Retail does not work very well for someone in the, whatever you want to call us. Uh, some people call it the niche market. Some people call it alternative production. I consider myself a pig farmer, like any of my friends who have 20,000 sows. We still face many of the same problems every day. So, Retail is an extremely tough market to deal with because the competition is brutal. And what we found, you asked about metrics. You really have to know who your customer is. That is the important piece. Who are you targeting? And when you're targeting a clientele who are looking for whatever it is you have to sell, I make an analogy to individuals who ask what we do. I said, some people buy cheap battery-operated wristwatches. And some people buy mid-priced wristwatches. And then some people buy Rolexes. And the -hmm. same is said in the car business, right? And technology, in clothing, all these different things. And, And I can make that analogy to say that we want to be the Rolex. That was what we tended to be. And so, we really focused on someone who may be classified a foodie, if that makes sense, someone who likes to experiment, they like to cook at home, they like a diverse range of products. They're not just conventional pork chop and bacon people. They're people who go out to restaurants routinely. They're willing to spend more money for quality products. So our customer also needs to be a person who thinks about quality over quantity. They care about what they feed their family and they wanna have a fantastic eating experience. So once we identified that, we realized very quickly that competitors in the protein market can push you out of retail very, very quickly. And something to remember about this is that in the late 1990s, companies like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and, you know, little niche butcher shops, that stuff was not here. It wasn't in the United States and it wasn't popular. And the antibiotic-free market was extremely small. So fortunately, we were a little before our time. We were positioned very well whenever things started to come on board. I mean, I can give you another example. Think about the explosive power of the food network. In the 1990s, the food network was nothing, and now people really are into food and they're into ingredients and so we grew around that same time and we learned that retail wasn't there we did the farmers market thing which is very successful for many many people who are small scale niche it's a very good avenue to get your name out there but you will kill yourself going to the farmers market every okay. saturday morning at 3 in the morning and then there is a point where you need to start considering I give a presentation quite often that is called Scaling Up Niche, and I think that there's a point where you have to decide, am I in this to be a small niche product just in my area, and eventually when I'm tired of this, I exit the market, or am I interested in being a larger regional player and Mm -hmm. finding people outside of my base? And that's what we did. So, as soon as we stopped focusing just on local markets. And we started to think about the popularity of white tablecloth restaurants, reaching out to these chefs who were up and coming. And quite literally, uh, my dad, Mark Newman was his name. He he passed away several years ago, but I mean, he made a business and still has a reputation to this day as a guy who would literally just walk in the back door of a restaurant. He never walked through the front. He (laughs) always walked through the back. He would say, I want to talk to the chef. And the chef would come out and he'd say, I'm Martin Newman. I'm a pig farmer. I'm from Myrtle, Missouri. I raised the best quality pork in the world. And I'd like to do business with you.
1: That's a pretty good sales pitch. Yeah,
2: it is. And, and some people say no, but a lot of people said yes. And the thing that I tell everyone who asks about this business is they say, it's all farming. I said, first, you better be passionate about it because it's not about getting rich, right? But it's a great market where you can be sustainable and sustainable means staying in business to me. But the other thing is, is that our business is 100% foundationally built on relationships and building those relationships with those chefs as they move from this restaurant to this restaurant, and they become a James Beard Award winner, or maybe they end up working for a Michelin star restaurant somewhere. If you've given them a great product consistently, and you've given them great customer service, one becomes two, and two becomes four, and four becomes eight, and you start to build into something that you can actually grow your production side around, and you can start to scale things. And when you scale things, the economy of efficiency and production still plays a role there.
1: Absolutely. Okay, let's drill down into this a little bit. This is, this is just so rich and first of all, I, I wanna hear you deliver that presentation on scaling up niche at some point. Um, but let's talk about that because on the one hand, you're talking about quality, customer service, relationships. On the other hand, you're talking about scaling a business and expanding your footprint. And so how did you balance those two competing objectives if they're even competing at all? And how did you scale up the model of growing sales through the relationships to continue growing the business once you dialed into this white tablecloth restaurant market?
2: (laughs) That's a loaded question. So (laughs) I can tell you the answer. So we're gonna, let's start with the, how did we scale over on the production and sales side first? So there is a jumping off point for every business where you realize you have to grow. We're not adverse to taking risks and we were not immune to, you know, understanding that it was a big risk. So there's a point where you say, we really need to double down on this and go forward without ever sacrificing quality. So honestly, one of the ways is you've got to learn to say no, and that's hard. And you've got to learn to say, I can't do that for you. And you've got to learn to say, I'm sorry, but we have a limited amount of this product. And it's hard for people who are focused on sales to say, what do you mean you don't have any? Well, if we don't have any, we've got to get it. We've got to make more. Well, making more of a quality product, you can't just whip out a Rolex in a day. It's a fine-tuned machine. And so what we did is we slowly brought sales into our business as we grew. And there was a point where we said, here's the big thing is, you've got to really think just the same way as we did when we were in what I would call conventional commodity production. You've got to have animals for sale 52 weeks a year, not 42, not 32 and definitely not 10. And that's what a lot of people who are on the smaller side of niche, I will say, especially farmers markets and things like that. They're offering a limited time offer, right? Farmers Mm -hmm. markets don't go all year for example, or maybe they're only processing 10 or 20 animals. That's a fantastic model. It's a great way to make extra income. It's a great thing to show your kids. It's a great way to build a reputation for a small product. But is it something you can do without supplemental income? Is it yes. something you can do without having a, you know, a job in town, as they say? And that's where you have to learn to scale. And so you've got to match the biology and the production to the sales and the marketing. And so we rolled into that and we started incorporating our genetics into other farms. And we have families that raise pigs for us. Our genetics, our feeding protocol, people who select for great quality as well. And we built the production model. So you got to learn to say no. Something that I tell our group here all the time is you can't chase people to the bottom. And what I mean is, there are people who might call you and say, "I'm interested in a truckload of this. It could be butts or loins or something else. This is what I'm interested in, but this is all I'm going to pay and if you're starting a conversation at more of a commodity pricing model, you're probably never going to get there, and you have to learn to just say, "Hey, you know for special events or for something else, I understand you know we can come back and work with you in the future, but right now we're probably not a great fit. That leaves you more opportunity to go to Larger restaurant groups or hospitality groups or individuals who are expanding their chains or something else, their restaurants to say, hey, we're going to continue to focus on these individual spec cuts and we're going to provide you with an exceptional eating experience. Now, the other piece you asked about marketing, hire someone who knows something about sales and marketing.
1: (laughs) Excellent advice.
2: (laughs) Our business changed overnight. You know, I'm, I'm a farmer. I'm used to hiring people to work on the farm, people to work in farrowing, people to work in gestation, people to help us working cattle, people to plant and harvest and bush hog, whatever it is. I mean, I have a farmer mentality. To put money into digital marketing and a marketing strategy or to hire a sales and marketing director, we took a position out and we took a chance. And when we hired someone who could put an emphasis on that, our business changed overnight.
1: Absolutely. So my takeaway from what you're saying here is that there is a discipline that comes with completely transitioning your business model. It's not that we're just saying, okay, we're going to go sell into a new sales channel. That idea of matching the biology and the production with your sales and marketing program, having the discipline to know what you're going to say yes and no to, to know who you need to hire and who you need to not hire. I mean, that's a complete paradigm shift from commodity production that's all about volume, that's all about getting the product sold. Is that fair?
2: Very fair. And by the way, very risky. I mean, it sounds very appealing. When you're in the niche business, there is nothing like someone calling out your product by name. That's a great feeling. I'm very proud when people say, I ate some Newman Farm Heritage Berkshire pork, and it was the best pork I ever ate. That's a big compliment. But let me tell you, there's a tremendous amount of work, 24 hours a day, because you're not just a farmer anymore. You're in marketing and sales and human resources. And chefs require a tremendous amount of maintenance. And so, you know, they want to have a feeling of this relationship. So you have to constantly work at those. It's like being married to 300 people some days. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're doing that, you really have to be able to maintenance those relationships. That's a really important piece. And it takes a tremendous amount of money. You know, and something that people don't think about. I mean, restaurants and food service businesses, I mean, this does not operate on the same type of financial model that we're used to when you're telling into a traditional marketing channel you're going to be sitting on a lot of that money for 30, 40 days with a lot of risk associated with it at times. So you're going to take some blows during that time, but you're going to build long term relationships that you're going to have that customer 10 years, 15 years from now, regardless of where they're at.
1: Right. This is a long term game that you're playing and you've got to resource and build everything accordingly. So that's such a good point. So before we shift to talking about 2020 and the chaos of it and what that's meant for your business. One more question I want to ask you on this market around food service that you've cultivated. One of the big issues that I I hear a lot of folks talk about when you look at a regional plant or starting a sales program is you've got to sell the entire carcass and not just the highest demand items whether we're talking pork or beef. So how did you navigate that issue as you were selling into food service to sell the entire carcass at a premium as opposed to just pork chops, if you will?
2: I'm sitting in my office right now staring at a whiteboard across the room. And on the top of that whiteboard, it says whole carcass utilization. And we have a team meeting in my office every week. And we talk about this thing of marketing the whole carcass. Everybody will try to take, loins or bellies or shoulders, you know, the premium primal cuts and retail cuts, but you've got to teach people that those customers you built a relationship with, you've got to educate them constantly about the importance of taking grind, right? there's a lot of grind comes off a carcass and it's even more in the beef side. I mean, the niche beef sector is extremely challenging because you've got to figure out what to do with all that ground beef, right? Everybody wants your ribeyes. Everybody wants your strips. Everybody wants your tenderloins. You can sell briskets, you know, you can sell chuck rolls, but you got to sell the rest of that carcass to make a single dime. And if all your money is tied up in a walk-in freezer somewhere that you either own or you're paying rent space on, you won't make money you'll get pushed out of the business. So we're not focusing on our primals on a week-to-week basis. We're focusing on moving shanks and country ribs and ground pork and coming up with new items and thinking about creative ways to move hams in a huge way. We rely on the prosciutto business to take up most of our ham space. And so we have worked a lot of programs with some really excellent artisan prosciutto people and we find ways to get those spec hams out to them and make prosciutto and even in our business we might end up buying half of that back from a processor and then selling a 435 day dry aged prosciutto that we may put back into our own marketing channels. There's a lot of avenues there but you nailed it on the head and that is that you've got to figure out to sell that whole thing. And whatever you do, this is just my piece of advice to people who are niche. You cannot let your cold storage stock eat you because it'll eat you alive. You cannot sit on a bunch of product in a freezer and say, well, hopefully that product will move in the fall or it'll move in the spring. Knowing that you can get it out the door, even if you have to sacrifice a little bit of price on it, get it moving and keep it moving because all your money and your profit is sitting in there in those cases.
1: That's right. That's such a good point. So on that note, let's shift it then to the chaos of 2020. And I'm just going to start this out really open-ended. Talk to me about how your world changed in March and what happened in the business.
2: Yeah. Well, certainly everybody in the world and anybody listening to this knows that their life was disrupted in a tremendous way and, and we're no different. So Let's back up into the very beginning of COVID back in March and April. We were about an 85 to 90% food service company with about 10 to 15% retail business. And in five days, we transitioned to a 99% retail company with 1% of food service business. And even now, we're only back to about 10 or 15% of food service. You know, I mean, out on the coast, there's nothing is open. And these restaurants can't operate at 20 or 25% occupancy. There's nothing there. So there's not a strong market in those East Coast markets and the West Coast markets right now. Luckily, we've seen some push in the Midwest, but this business is up and down. And as we roll into the fall and people get away from their outdoor seating and creative things they've done over the summer, we expect to see a very big slump in that food service business. So we transitioned everything and we saw a lot of the same issues that you saw major packers were facing. We had a ton of product on trucks that was packaged in food service packaging. And we do a lot of fresh business. And when a lot of this stuff showed up, people just refused delivery. They were just sending back product like crazy. And so we had some sleepless nights there for a couple of weeks thinking what's going to happen here. But, uh, A very good friend of mine, Everett Forkner, he's from Nevada, Missouri, and he's a legendary pig farmer here in the United States. And he's winning the Saddle and Sirloin Award, for example, in November. And he's won numerous industry awards and he's a former president of the Pork Board. He received a national award back in the spring at the uh, National Pork Forum. And I asked Everett, you know, 60 years of farming, what was the secret to his business? And he said, we had to totally recreate ourselves about every 10 to 15 years, complete recreation. And that kept us in business. And so I think about that all the time. And I think that for my young family, my wife and I have a five and a seven year old and we're fairly young farmers. This is the first of many recreations. We witnessed the recreation in the late 1990s that I described to you a minute ago. And now we're completely recreating that again. You know, what we're hopeful for is that we build a really strong retail business as we've done, and we've done some super creative things during COVID. We went back to almost a farmer's market approach, sending the reefer trucks out, pre-orders where we were safely packaging meat in our own facility, what customers wanted, and they would do a drop point at like bank drive-through parking lots. Never get out of their vehicle, set it in the back, send people on. We were moving truckloads of meat. And now that COVID has become the normal, unfortunately, we're transitioning out of that and into more digital marketing and shipping and distribution. And those are the probably the two hardest things to figure out in this business, shipping and distribution.
1: Yeah, again, those are not things that most farmers are dealing with. One of the issues that I see a lot of folks having right now is they're trying to transition to some sort of direct to consumer model at a producer level even if they're not yet to the point of scaling, but they're just starting to dabble in that direct-to-consumer, the first issue they run into is processing. How do I get processing capacity? And so I guess I want to jump back in time here to 20 years ago. How did you guys tackle that problem? How did you go about finding a processing partner? What did that journey look like?
2: It's a pretty fascinating story how that also evolved at the same time. So let's just look at it like this. We had the production we had the best quality genetics in the country. That's what we believe. We had the best meat quality out there. We found a distributor who was looking for products like ours. And it wasn't just selecting products. It was the whole carcass. So we were able to move that. We were able to work with them. We still work with that sales team every single day. Our two sales teams are interwoven. We're moving product back and forth between the two of us on a daily basis. We needed one good processor that we could work with. And there was a family, the Phantasma family, their own Paradise Locker Meats, just north of Kansas City, Missouri. They were running a very small locker plant and they were looking for opportunities to expand. We all found each other. It's like the stars aligned. I mean, literally we, we all found each other and we talked about this big idea of, Exceptional production, exceptional processing, paying attention to everything from layerage to chilling carcasses to fabrication to exceptionally good packaging, making the products look as good as you possibly can. And over this last 20 years, all of us have scaled around eightfold. Wow. So, you know, the plant there today is more than 40,000 square feet our production system is more than eight times multiplied. The distribution network has increased tremendously. So we're not trying to be greedy and own the whole chain. That's important because you just can't, you know, there are companies that are doing it very, very well, but we're marketing in two different types of avenues. So, you know, share in the cost and share in the rewards and, it can be a very rewarding process for everyone. So this processing piece, it's a huge part of where the industry is clogged up right now, right? I mean, we saw Mm -hmm. that on the commercial side during COVID in the beginning, but there was already a small processing issue before COVID ever came around. So we've had these (laughs) processors that, you know, a lot of states are limited on the number of processors. Call any small processor and say, hey, I'd like to get 10 head a weekend or 20 head a weekend And they will tell you there is no way possible because that processing game is risky too. And it takes an exceptionally large financial investment. And the other side of it is, you know, my background from an education standpoint is meat science. And one of the pieces about these small processors is is that in the Midwest, especially deer processing is so profitable that they don't want to be federally inspected because they make so much bread and butter off of deer season and not working under FSIS guidelines and HACCP plans that they can do non-exempt product for seven months of the year. They can process deer for four months of the year, and they can make a lot of money. And if they want to be federally inspected and supply someone like me, they need to kill a large number of animals 52 weeks a year. And that does not mean going non-exempt during deer season. So the small processors, that's a big hurdle to overcome in this country moving forward. Because if you want to get into niche today, I don't even know who you would call to get processing. And if you want to build your own plant, you hear lots of people talking about building their own plant now. That takes years and millions and millions of dollars of risk to get off the ground. So it's not something you can just turn a switch on and get done overnight.
1: Right. It's a tricky one. And I mean, I'm hearing producers across the country on the cattle side that are saying we can't get a slot at the local plant until sometime mid to late 2021 at this point. And to your point, it sounds great to say it out loud of an idea to build a plant, but the costs associated with that, the expertise to run that again, coming back to the idea that the plant's got to have a way to sell the entire carcass. There's just a lot of traps in that, but It's really interesting to hear you talk about that you guys found a partner because you were committing to growing the business. You guys were able to grow together. And actually, as you were telling that story, it was really reminding me of McDonald's and OSI, which is one of their largest suppliers, OSI grew alongside of McDonald's because the original owner of OSI was friends with Ray Kroc. And so when Ray Kroc was starting to expand some stores around the country and went to the owner of OSI, which at that time was just a single butcher shop and said, I need some help supplying some product here. And they grew together. So really interesting to hear you talk about this idea that it takes an ecosystem, which comes back to that commitment to scale, commitment to growing the business and getting big.
2: Yeah. It takes an ecosystem and we have had so many people ask us like, when are you going to build a plant? You know, what a great story to tie it all together and (laughs) you keep everything in your own system. And and I tell people, I already have too many irons in the fire the way it is. If you try to add that iron to the fire, I promise you, you will have to sacrifice quality somewhere in your organization and you're going to have to expand. And then there's a point you may outgrow the uniqueness of the business model that started you. Does that make sense? And next thing you know, you're just competing on the wholesale market. And if you're going to compete on the wholesale market against the big five, you're not going to last very long.
1: That's right. You will lose that game.
2: You will lose that game because they can operate at a loss until you're out of business.
1: Well, it's just such a cool story. I appreciate you sharing this with us. Before we wrap up, let me ask you this. What would be one piece of advice that you would have for producers that are considering moving into some sort of a value-added market?
2: Well, (laughs) there's a lot of piece of advice, but I'll say two things. Don't go in blind to the fact that you are not going to make a lot of money right off the bat. You need to understand that you've got to have a sound business plan and you really need to think about your approach. Try to sell the animal from an opposite method that you may traditionally think about. Try to sell all those other pieces. Talk to people about selling grind and heads, and what are you going to do with all these other, you know, little ancillary pieces? So, so you know, really, you've got to think through the marketing strategy, and it's really easy to get hung up in that. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a steak on a menu and a Bruce, Chris, it had her name on it. Yeah, it would. But what about the rest of the carcass? What are you going to do with it? So think through that. Know that it's going to take a lot of money. You know, you got to be willing to put a lot of money out on the line. And more than anything, you've got to be a relationship builder. If you are a poor communicator, you will never make it in this business because the amount of time spent communicating your story, the story of transparency and quality and family and relationships and eating experiences. I spend 18 hours a day doing that seven days a week. And if you're not a good communicator, you need to find the person on your team that is a good communicator and they need to be your spokesman because you've got a lot of work ahead of you, but it's a super, super fun business to be a part of you know, I'll leave it with this. The thing that I think about routinely is there are people who think what we do is crazy. And I'm okay with that. Because I tell everyone, the true definition of sustainability is staying in business. And I am very confident that I'm going to be able to demonstrate to my children that you can run a successful farming operation and be different and be successful. And I will even have that opportunity to give the opportunity to my children to take this operation over. That is not something every farmer can say.
0: Wow, what a treat to hear from David. Jeanette, well done. That was fantastic. Uh, You're kind of my go-to resource on all things animal ag. You know the space very well. You work in it every day. After your conversation with David, what are your big takeaways?
1: So I think the biggest thing for me is that this is this is a different business model. This is a different mindset. And it's not just saying, okay, we've raised these animals at the same way we always have. And now we're just going to think about selling them in a new way. No, it's it's about more than just sales channel. It's about the entire business model. Who are your business partners? You know, what are the genetics that you're bringing to the market? How are you producing them? How, how are you then building in marketing capability? It's about the whole entire system. That's what I think David described really well is this... It's a systems thinking approach and for producers to do this well and move into this type of a model, again, at scale, which is different than, you know, just just from a lifestyle business perspective, certainly not that there's anything wrong with that. But to do this at scale requires a completely different way of thinking about your business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what I really love about this is there's this trap in thinking that there's only two ways that you're either a small Hobby farm that sells a few animals at a local farmer's market, or your only other option is to go big and be in the commodity business. Like there's nothing in between. And of course, David definitely proves that it is possible to build a brand and a real growing business in this way. And also, I love his comments at the end about if we're going to have a more distributed food system, there's going to have to be partners where we all win. There can't be one monolithic winner by definition for that future of agriculture. So I had high expectations for this, Jeanette, but you absolutely exceeded them. Thank you to to you, obviously, but also thank you to David for sharing all of this great information with us. If you enjoyed this episode, you will absolutely enjoy Jeanette's weekly email newsletter. It's free. Go to primefuture.substack.com and uh, subscribe there. If you can't remember a URL because you're driving, it'll be in the show notes. So just uh, grab it there. One aspect of David's business that didn't make it on the show but is certainly relevant to our episode here today is a software he uses to help market his business that is specifically designed to help direct-to-consumer producers. It's called Barn to Door, and that's who we're featuring in today's Startup Spotlight. The genesis of the idea came to founder Janelle Mayako when she was working for restaurants and having a surprisingly difficult time finding farmers she could purchase from directly.
3: I actually got my MBA here in Seattle, um, which is great because you get spit out into a very tech ecosystem um, here, which was wonderful from an experience standpoint. I worked early for a food tech venture fund, uh, worked my way through a number of their portfolio companies. And then after about 10 years, I dipped out for a year and went to culinary school and uh, became a trained chef. It was when I finished that and I for a short duration taught at a cooking school, and was trying to source my own food directly from farmers. And what, what would you know? I had that aha moment of, wow, that is not easy to find farmers to buy food from. It is, it is actually very difficult. Um, and then sort of the, I think, tech and business light bulb went off. And I was like, wait a minute. You know, in Washington state, there's 40,000 farms alone. And nobody knows how to get their food. And so, my goal quickly became, let's solve this with software. Like, I know in a day and age of Uber and Airbnb and Amazon, people know and expect you can buy direct from people online. Um, And that really launched the next 10 years of my career, right? So, I had a first company and and then um, learned a ton, you know, as you always do on your first run at something. Um, And then, Barn to Door has just become a fantastic, you know, evolution of knowledge and learning to then really um, go after this market and be very helpful for farmers.
0: Now, others have tried to solve this type of problem with software by building some sort of a marketplace, and there are plenty of great e-commerce tools out there. But what makes Barn to Door different is they are deeply focused on making producers more successful by building direct customers. Janelle grew up in agriculture and spent years working in restaurants, so she has a great vantage point for both sides of the transaction
3: the whole goal of burn to door is to help farmers be successful serving their local communities and keeping a maximum margin it's not rocket science to appreciate that if you if you're handing your food over to a truck and a distributor and they have to aggregate and there's a warehouse where you know where they have to keep the lights on and repackage uh, and then shelf space where things might go bad so you have waste and 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 i could go on right so there's a lot of cost in the system. If a farmer sells direct, they can actually keep the margin, right? If a farmer is using a distributor who does aggregation and sales on their behalf, the margin loss tends to be between 30 and 80%. If a farmer sells direct, they can keep the margin. And ideally, we're helping that become easier and easier and easier. If they shift to direct sales, they make way more money and keep more in their pocket. And that, that inspires us every single day. Because we know if we can help these amazing farms all over the country be successful in their local communities and keep those margins, and then, you know, ultimately, we can help them be more successful as a business um, and in their local communities. And there's a number of elements that are really important to that, which is we want the farmer to have the relationships with their community. We want them to own those customer relationships and as many as possible, right? Not just one distributor, because then... Whoop, You know, if, if something happens to that restaurant or that grocery store, or they quickly shift and, t- and buy, uh, you know, nine acres of Brussels sprouts from somebody else instead of the, the one farmer, that puts them in a really bad spot, right? And so, the goal here is to help them connect with their local communities with their own brand. Uh, we're just a software that powers them to be successful, And to make sure it's convenient for buyers like you and I and chefs um, and even schools and hospitals to be able to just go online, place their order and choose their delivery day or their pickup location.
0: It sure seems like the timing for something like this couldn't be better. I mean, commodity markets haven't been great for a lot of farmers. The technology is obviously there. More people than ever are buying food online and, as Janelle points out, wanting to know where their food comes from.
3: I, of course, I was looking for local food, but we were also in this fantastic time, um, you know, in the history of of food, if you will, where people really cared about their transparency. They want to know, you know, where the food is coming from. They want it to be nutritious. They're learning now that the soil really matters. Um, And so there's all these different wonderful moving parts where there's essentially a market opportunity of full of people who want to buy the best stuff from the local farmer and What I recognized was that the missing piece was convenience. So it was the buyer group of all of us who are very used to just, you know, click, add to my cart, buy, and it shows up on my doorstep, right? So we've been conditioned for this convenience factor in our shopping, um, which was a missing piece for farmers that were working to sell direct. And so to help them use software then to then, I don't want to say compete with Amazon, but my goal ultimately from the beginning was that it would be as easy to buy from a farmer, a local farmer, as it would be to buy from Amazon or any online grocer or big box anything, right? So if it, the convenience factor is even or equivalent, you know, hopefully nine times out of 10, you're gonna buy from the farmer instead of Amazon, because in one way or another, it's showing up on your doorstep.
0: Well, certainly a compelling pitch, both for producers and for consumers. But what about investors? Many ag tech companies have chased the largest producers to capture as many acres as possible as quickly as possible. But Barnador has successfully raised over $10 million already, mostly to go after small to mid-sized producers. Is that total addressable market big enough?
3: in terms of actual food production that we can consume as humans, um, the majority of it actually comes from, you know, quote unquote, the small farms. There's actually 2 million farms in America and there's a large sum of those are actually the farmers that are producing food on a smaller scale um, around all of their communities. And frankly, they've been overlooked and that's that's why we're having so much fun and having such a great time building software in a way that has never been built before for these farmers. And I can't tell you how uh, rewarding it is. I mean, I've been interviewing so many people that want to join and just help. You know, our team members come off phone calls just being like, wow, we're, we're literally changing the lives of these farmers. And, and the answer is like, yeah, we really are. Um, or we have that opportunity to um, if, they, if they join us and lean in. And, and it's just it's a true joy for us.
0: Well, Janelle and her team are well on their way to building systems and tools for farmers of all sizes to build a brand and a customer base of their own. Their tool can help empower not only existing direct-to-consumer businesses, but also people looking to get into farming for the first time, or perhaps large producers that want to try out this model as a side business. All of this is leading to Janelle's vision for the future of agriculture.
3: Our goal is to take it next level for these farmers to be successful in a way that they have never seen before and in a way that buyers like you and I have never seen before, so that Ultimately, at the end of the day, we'll look back and be like, why wasn't it always like this? Why wasn't it always this easy to buy from farmers? Whereas in the end, it just seems so obvious.
0: Well, thank you so very much to Barn to Door founder and CEO Janelle Mayako for being on the show. That was a fantastic startup spotlight to cap off a really, really great episode. Go learn more about Barn to Door at www.barntodore.com. The two is the number two. Thanks again to David Newman of Newman Farm and Jeanette Barnard of Prime Future for being on the show and putting together such a fantastic episode for you all. We really appreciate your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with more stories of ag innovation.